Today at ICON, Michelle believes that everybody deserves a second chance in life. I have my good friend, Mr. Roy Coughlin, hailing all the way down from Poland. And Roy and I are both co-creating our uh, podcasts, and we're doing this together today. And uh, you're going to hear a lot from me and from Roy, and we both agreed to do this. And I'm really glad to have you here, Roy. Roy has an amazing podcast called The Awakening, and Roy and I have this, I know, this connection, right, Roy? Exactly, definitely, yeah. So this connection has helped us. I hope you enjoy the show today. And um, Roy, uh, what's weather like in Poland today? It's actually beautiful. It's uh, 21 degrees uh, centigrade, which is, I don't know, 70, 70, 72 Fahrenheit, because we don't, I think it's only uh, the states use Fahrenheit, so yeah, I think about 70, 70 degrees Fahrenheit, yeah. By the time, and it looks like a beautiful place you got behind you there on the screen. I didn't know Poland looked like that, but that's great. Okay. Well, yeah, exactly. Create what you want to be, that's yeah, right. where you want to be. Well, thank you for being on Icon today. I appreciate it, and we'll get started. Thank you for having me. So first, I'd like to say, because I, I mean, obviously, we've connected a lot through the course we're doing. I have seen the dogs that you've got. You have some beautiful, how many dogs have you got? <laughs> right now we've got six, six, six total, yeah. And they look extremely, two, two, two puppies, but they look yeah. extremely healthy. You can see, and they're clung to you. So you can see yeah. the love that they've got for you. Yeah. yeah, they've got a lot of love for me and I got a lot of love for them. They're very, um, they're inspirational, you know, they're, they're innocent and um, yeah, they're my family. Beautiful. Yeah, no, I think uh, with a dog, when you come home, it's unconditional love, the way they actually, how they react to when they see you. And it's the nicest feeling that you can get. Have you seen what happens when I come home with the dogs? No, no. And they each have their own, they each have their own thing they do. So Hercules is the big 160-pound, you know, Great Pyrenees. And he has to jump up on my shoulders. And he's eye to eye with me. And he has to look at me. And he, I go, hey, tell me your story. Tell me your story for the day. And he'll sit there and go, Woo! It'll give me like one lick and then he's done. And then Brizo, she just wants to come up and then I go down, she hops up real quick, gives me a quick lick, and then she's done. And then Magnum gets up and he's kind of a spaz and he just like jumps, jumps, jumps and just like wants more and more hugs and like, and he wants to dance. So he likes it when I grab his arms and then he do a little dance with him and then let him go. And then I have my tenants have moved in and their dog, when you go to pet her, she's just so lovable. She immediately falls over to her belly and just wants to like submit and have your rubber belly. And then I got the two puppies. They don't know what to do. They just come like want to bite my feet. But that's what happens when I come home. Well, that's one thing that and you would never get. Minutes. Oh, well, you, you would never get tired of that. Yeah, no, oh, no exactly. No. That is and pure they do love. That every time. It's wow. Pure love. Every pure. time. Beautiful. So, Michael, you might tell us your story. Well, um, you know, it's a pretty dark story, you know, from the beginning. I had a very, um, a very, you know, troubled childhood. I grew up, um, you know, it's considered middle-class America, you know, average, you know, white family in a white neighborhood, um, you know, parents, blue collar workers, my dad, stepfather. Um, but my mom got pregnant at 15 with me and she had me when she was 16. And her and my real father split up when I was two and um, he gave me up for adoption because she had him thrown in jail for not paying child support. And, you know, and this is the story that I got from them. And he says it's because he had other kids to take care of at that time, which 
I look back into the timelines, it's like, no, he didn't have those kids until after he got out of jail. And then he went to Alaska and then he got somebody pregnant. So it was my mom's best friend growing up. So you have my, my dad and my mom and then their best friend and her best friend and his, her, his, her boyfriend. And they went to a key party, supposedly. And if you've ever heard about a key party, it's everybody throws keys in a thing and then they take a key out and they go home with different people. So they tried to keep that story from me and I found out about that. And, um, and then so growing up, um, my mom and my real father had no contact and I got adopted. But later on in life, I found out that these timelines didn't match up they were telling me. But growing up, I was always you know, thinking like my real dad would come rescue me because I lived at home, I lived through sexual abuse, physical abuse, mental abuse. And, you know, I was told that, you know, I ruined her life. You know, she wished she would have had me. If she would have had a coat hanger, she would have done it herself. If um, 15 more minutes of this wouldn't have mattered because I was born a couple months premature. And had I been any longer, they said I probably would have died. But when I was born, they said I was going to be a vegetable and that they suggested that I be, you know, lived to die. And, um, you know, thank God for my grandparents, my, my mother's parents, they said, no, he's going to live and whatever happens, you know, God will either take him or he won't. So, you know, I lived and I think that really, um, really upset my mother and, um, and she was really young and I don't really know what her childhood was like, but I know her parents, my grandparents were always great to me. And, um, you know, drugs entered into the uh, equation at a very young age, drugs and alcohol. And, you know, I was given drugs and alcohol from the time I was probably, you know, four or five years old. Wow. And my youngest memories of like, you know, being molested, like from my mother, my uncle, older boys in the neighborhood, a female babysitter. And I look back and thinking like, why was I going to a babysitter during the day when my mother was at home and taking other foster kids to the babysitter's house when my mom's at home? And, you know, I'm not gonna go into the graphic details of things that happened, but it was, it was, you know, fill in the blank. It's everything you can imagine that was horrible for a kid. And because I wasn't beaten into submission, you know, it was a weird feeling because like I knew it was wrong, but then like I wanted that attention. I wanted that feeling, you know? And um, so it really, it really messed with my head growing up, you know? Um, and then watching what would happen to the foster kids, there was a lot of beatings to them. So if my, if my mother liked one of them, Man, she, you know, she treated him like royalty. But if she didn't, she knew how to hurt with words and hurt physically without leaving marks. And um, it was, um, you know, watching that. And my mom was, you know, like six foot one. And she had like a big, you know, wig that she wore. Like a, she, I mean, she wanted to look like Cher. And she did. She had dark hair. She had boobs out to here. She wore this blue pantsuit almost every single day. It was, it, it was just really weird growing up like that. And she had, you know, high, like big platform shoes on. And so she looked like she was a seven foot tall, you know, Amazon that was mean as hell that would, you know, my friends didn't want to come to the house because they were scared of her, you know, and they, they would witness the craziness that happened. And, um, you know, through my life, you know, it affected me, it affected me. As soon as I was able to realize that I had a voice, 
and I finally knocked her out, you know, when I'm 14 years old. And I was like, you know, no one's going to silence me again. I'm, I'm never going to be silenced again. I'm going to talk. And, you know, so I had to win everything. I had to win every fight. I had to win every argument. You know, I was just always trying to prove myself. And it didn't bode well in relationships. And it took, you know, I'm 54. It took until I was like 50, 49, almost 50 years old. And I'm a sixth marriage to finally realize that, you know, I might be part of the problem. Mm-hmm. And then going through therapy and then doing DBT therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy and EMDR, which is, you know, eye movement, rapid desensitization. And it's where like you follow the finger and they push it up to the right and you follow it and you start with the thoughts. And all I can say is it like reinforces mindfulness and it reinforces like when a feeling comes to me that I can hold on to that feeling or I can let it go. And so even holding on to good feelings are bad because when you are holding on to a good feeling, you know, your heart's not open to accept any other feeling except what you're trying to hold on to. And you're usually holding on to something from the past because you want that feeling again. So even if you're holding on to a good memory of a good feeling, you're still not experiencing the now. And especially if you're holding on to a bad feeling and you're always in a victim mode, you know, so now it's doubly bad because you're holding on to the past and you're holding on to a past bad thought. So now you're reinforcing the bad thoughts and you're not open to receive any good ones. So learning how to let, um, it's like, you know, trying to grab water. You can't grab water. You can't grab smoke. You can feel it go past you. You can experience it. But now I can let it go and I can experience each moment in the now and like live in that space where, you know, this moment hasn't come. Okay, now it came, now it left. And now it came, now it left. Like you and I are having this experience right now. Well, what's going to happen in 20 minutes doesn't matter. And what happened 20 seconds ago doesn't matter. But like right now is all that matters. And and so we're constantly creating like, what is our now going to be? And so when they talk about co-creating and things like that, I have learned so much through, you know, the people in the book at the end, I put the the resources. I think I I don't know. I think I gave you that copy. Because all the people who've influenced me and you've got people like Joe Dispenza and Bruce Lipton and, and Brian Rose and Anthony, you know, um, Robbins and just like all the people that I put on there, Wayne Dyer, you know, one of my favorites, you know, I mean, he was, I remember one of Wayne Dyer's, um, it was a compilation of, of his, of his interviews. And one of them said, um, wouldn't it be great to go through life with this peaceful knowing that it's all going to be okay. And I was like, fuck, that's what I've always wanted. Yeah. I want that. I want it to be all okay. Oh my God. You know, I, I tell you, I still get chills. Like when I think about when I first heard that, oh man, I just get that, um, that I get that same feeling of like, God, that's what I want. Yeah, that's what I want. And then I read a book called um, The Way to Love. And it's probably more funny the way the book came to me, but the book is an amazing book. But I was at my, um, ironically, I was at my stepmother's house. The, the one who my mom and her were best friends growing up until we had the babies and she got caught fooling around with my dad and whatever. So that woman, my dad ended up marrying her. So I have half brothers and sisters from her. So I went up there to stay with her this last summer or like four summers ago. And, um, and she really liked my wife, Robin, that I was number, wife number six. And, um, but you know, I needed to get away. Her and I had split up. I went there to stay with her 
and we met some biker guy in a bar, right? So I had my Harley and, you know, she's always like bikers. So I took her on a ride and we went up to a bar and then she meets some biker guy and she's an old biker broad and she doesn't care. She just like wants to get on someone's bike and ride. So this guy was pretty intelligent, you know, and he was, he was woke, you know? And so we started talking and he kept talking about this book. He goes, yeah, I don't, I don't know if you're ready for it yet. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he kept us up throughout the night. And I finally said, you know, who gives a fuck about your book? Whatever, you're right. I'm not ready for it. Okay, I don't even want to know about it. He says, ah, now you're ready for it. Because your ego doesn't want it. I go, oh, great, okay. So he told me the name of the book, and it was called, you know, The Way to Love. Okay. And that book, The Way to Love, was like, it opened my eyes about how to, if you really love something, you know, it can't be something man-made. And it has to be when you decide that you don't want it. And you look at everything in your life from perspective of, I, do I do I want it or do I think I need it? And so when you get up of all your attachments to anything, and then you decide, okay, what am I going to add back into my life because I want it to be there, not because I have to have it there. Because, like when someone makes a statement, I can't live without you, Roy. Roy, I can't live without you. That's a horrible statement. That's a controlling statement. That's a guilt statement for you. But we've been programmed to think that like, that's that's the norm. That's a horrible thing. And and so it's been able to say, you know what, Roy, I love you enough to like, I want you to be happy. And so whatever you want to do, and I know you want the best for me too. And right now let's evaluate this relationship. And that's a healthy way to talk about it. It's not real, you know, romance, Harlequin romance, you know, novel, like, oh, you know, it's so romantic, you know, romance romanticism is highly inflated, you know. But having a deep spiritual connection with somebody is something that's not very well um, put out there, you know, because everyone thinks it has to be that the heart space is the, the romanticism. No, the heart space is saying, you know, I'm, I, I want my heart big enough to flow and I create space so I hold space for you. And so can, you can come in and out. And so when you come in and out of my heart, I get to experience each moment as you're there and vice versa. So you, you, know, you let your love flow back and forth. And you don't fixate on like, oh, God damn it, he pissed me off today or she pissed me off today. And it's like, wow, you know what, today she must be having a bad day. Oh, she'll have a better day tomorrow. And can I help you today? Is there anything I can do for you? And that was like, that was a whole other paradigm shift for me because I wasn't that person before. I was the exact opposite. So all those things you see on those 31 days are what I learned a lot of it by trial and error. A lot of it by consequence of the decisions I made and knowing like what not to do and then applying the things that I've learned through therapy, like how to handle those things. And so, you know, when you backtrack, like how did, when you have that sensitive growth period and the critical growth period in a child, well, critical growth is, you know, your eyes make those connections and your ears. And so like if you blindfold a mammal or a child at birth, and after six weeks, you take the blindfold off, their eyes will never attach because during that critical growth period, the brain says, hey, I must not need, you know, eyeballs, no sense making this attachment, don't need it. And then they're blind. But critical growth is, well, you'll still, you're not going to make those connections, but this is where with the family that you're of origin that you're living with, how, how will you grow up? The people to teach you negotiation and love and kindness and how to deal with, you know, uncomfortable emotional situations when you don't get your way, you know, you don't get what you want. How do you deal with that? Um, how do they deal with you when you act out? 
And, um, <clears throat> you know, the way I grew up was not like that. It was, oh, yeah, well, here, we beat the shit out of you. Let me degrade you. Let me demoralize you. Let me call your name and make fun of you. Let me hurt you real bad. And so I grew up with fight or flight. And then I find out like six years or six marriages, excuse me, later that um, I'm scared of women. And I have this fear. So every time it gets really bad, then I take off. I'm like, okay. And then I want to try and recreate it so that this time I can prove to the world that like I am lovable. I'm worth loving. I'm worth being married. And I like, I can't explain like how my head got pulled out of my ass, but it did. And I just remember we were at this one therapist together and um, everything he said was like, I needed to hear it. Like I needed to hear what he was saying and I didn't like it. And I just, and I remember telling him because my ex-wife Robin, she didn't want to go back and see him because she, honestly, she didn't like what, he wasn't the best for her, but he was the best for me. And and she knows that and she believes it. So when we were, um, when her and I left that session, I said, man, I need to go back and see him. So I started seeing him and like, you know, a big epiphany for me was, I would tell him, I was like, fuck man, I just like, if people would just listen to what I'm telling them, everything would be okay. Like it, the world would be a better place. And he looks at me and he's like, who in the fuck would want to listen to you? Look at your life. Look at the rearview mirror of your life and see all that destruction behind you. You did that. But you didn't know it. And you, or you did know it and you didn't know how to deal with it. But now you know. Because you were never given those mental images of for your brain to reach back, grab them and go, oh, you're not getting along right now? Oh, wait, here's a healthy image of how to negotiate. I didn't know that. I didn't like, fuck it. If I can't beat the shit out of them, I'm going to run from it. So, you know, when it became, you know, a challenge between me and another man, well, fuck yeah, man, I'm going to win. It don't matter. When it came an argument with anybody, no, I'm going to win. It doesn't matter. And he told me, he goes, look at what he's done for you. Nothing. Look where you're at in life winning all the time. He said, you can stand to lose everything and just not win anymore. And you'll win way more by losing. Do you know what I mean? And I was like, yeah, kind of, man. It starts making sense. He goes, so I don't want you to be in any relationships. No relationships. Five years. Five years. I couldn't go five minutes without having to find someone else to validate me because I don't want to be alone. I'm scared. I want to be told that I'm worthwhile and I'm valuable. And all these things that, you know, we're told to we're supposed to, to, to validate us and to tell us and like have people believe us. I was never told, uh, you need to learn how to love yourself first. You need to forgive yourself first. So all those things that she did, when I became a sexual predator in my own house, like I was, you know, I'm a kid and I was addicted to sex by the time I was like four years old. Like all I knew is that I wanted sex and whatever kid in the house was with me, I, they're going to have it with me and it didn't matter. And I look back horribly, like, how many kids did I fucking affect that I hurt? And, I mean, I carry that guilt. And my therapist said, you were a kid who was doing to other kids what was done to you and those kids by adults who violated you. 
And when you're violated like that by people in authority, you can't blame yourself, okay? And when you exactly. you knew right from wrong once you got older, and then so then you had all these guilty things, and so you, no wonder your life's all fucked up, Mike. But it doesn't matter because we're gonna teach you from this point forward because we know all that, throw it away. And now let's create the new you. And those first six months were, okay, how do you wanna feel? How do you wanna be? How do you wanna be perceived? How do you wanna act? How do you want to treat people? And I said, no, I wanna be loving, kind, gentle, transparent. I wanna be somebody who can help. I never wanna hurt anybody else. I wanna be somebody people wanna see coming rather than going. And I wanna be able to help anybody at any time the best I can, exceptionally nobody and helping all if I have the ability. And like my thoughts are, if you have a piece of the puzzle that can help someone else with their puzzle, then give it to them help, or help them find it if you have that ability. And get out of myself and get into other people. Now that, now that I've worked on myself, before I wanted to help everybody else so I didn't have to work on myself. But now that I've been able to forgive myself and look at things from a perspective of what, are my, what is my true intention and why do I want to do it? Well, helping other people is a selfish act because it's, it's the best feeling you can get. So when you look at it from the standpoint of I'm doing something for someone else, but God damn, man, it feels good. It feels better than going and buying a new car. It feels better than, you know, getting stuff and things. It's like, you know, what was posted on Facebook today where I'm getting sued right now from this thing that I did called the project. And it cost me $6,000 to go to this thing and this extreme physical, like I want to say physical abuse, but it's Navy SEAL level training. And then the mental training comes in. And it's because when I saw the person who was a social media influencer, who was a billionaire and who was putting it on. And it's weird because I met, I saw, I, I followed him because I was following, I started following Brian Rose. And then Brian Rose interviewed Wes Watson. Because someone said, hey, you need to see who Wes Watson is. So I see Wes Watson interviewed on London Real. And then I see, as I'm following him now, I see Wes Watson and he gets interviewed by Bedros Koulian. And then I look at Bedros and I see what he's about. And I see that two minute intro into the projects. And I don't know why it struck me, but he talked about men who've been you know, sexually molested and having a group of men talk about some things that aren't just subsurface. But the part that's not me is the whole hoorah, gotta be a badass motherfucker, like all their mantra. Fuck, that's not what I'm about. And I don't know how I got sucked into that, but I know that I wanted to make sure there was not something else that could help me with my development. Mm -hmm. And I got there and it was nothing like that. After five hours, like I still have sores all on my arm were from the from the armor crawling i don't know if you can see the ones on this arm in the back here yeah. and they're just now healing up and this is over a month later because we're doing army crawls through half a mile of rock concrete broken up crap weeds brush and so i had so much material in my body that was stuck in there like this arm was swung out up to here i thought that for sure i was gonna have to go to the doctor get it cut out or cut off it was pretty bad. So they medically discharged me after five hours. 33 hours later, this kid, Ricky, Ricky Spoon, who was 28 years old at the time, dies. And this kid was like me, big kid. 
he was a wrestler, I was a wrestler. We were both purple belts in jujitsu. We both were like very, you know, physical guys. And I, and we were talking because it was like, we had like six weeks after the class that we were going to meet so that we were all talking on Zoom classes and we had all these specialized workouts we were doing to try to get ourselves in shape. And I really connected with Ricky. And um, after he died, they didn't call to check up on me who they sent home the day before to see if I died. And Ricky dies and they decide to keep going with the other nine people that were still there that hadn't like rung out yet. And I find out a month or a week later that Ricky dies. I'm thinking, well, shit, he must've died in a car accident. Like it never even dawned on me that he could have died there, but he died there. Mm. And then one of the people that was there on site, one of the other candidates told Ricky's mom exactly what happened. And then when he called me and I talked to him, he confirmed everything that she told me. And that, but when, yet when Bedros called her, he lied to her. He said that there was more people there qualified in life-saving techniques than there were candidates. Fucking bullshit. Like, it's just a lie. But in California law, guess what? Wrongful death suits can only be brought forward by the wife if they're married. And she does not have to include the family, which she's not because the stepfather or the father-in-law is a very controlling person. So now the mother has lost her son twice. She doesn't get a day in court. She loses his life and everything's been swept under the rug. No one knows about it. I said, I'm going to make sure everybody knows about it. And I started. And so today I got served by a billionaire basically to stop talking. And I said, oh, well, let me put this on there as a matter of fact. So let me put this up on the thing. But first I'm going to call the attorney. And I call the attorney with Ricky's mom on the line. And the guy starts screaming at me. And I said, well, I'm going to go through your letter with you. And I'm going to categorically go through each of the things you're questioning and saying, and I'm going to tell you why I believe I have the right to say them. And then, and he was like screaming, you're not going to waste my time on this. And then he hangs up and that's okay. Because now it brought to light, you know, something that I'm, I'm doing for someone else. And when she asked me, she goes, what are you doing this for my, for me and my family for? I said, because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. If I didn't do this, this would fall through the cracks. And I don't want this to happen because, you know, this guy was, now I feel that this, this man is preying on people who've been through trauma like myself, extreme PTSD. And then he, he gets this certain type of people and they be, it's, it's almost cult-like. And I didn't realize it until like one of the newscasters I got a hold of on NBC down here. Now they're going to make it a big story. They're waiting for the coroner's report to make sure there was no other underlying condition. But once we found out exactly where he died from, which I guarantee you it's going to be heat stroke. I know it. I was a safety and risk manager for you know nine years for the government out here. Like, and I didn't have that. I didn't. I didn't have that mindset when I went in there. I wasn't going in there as a safety and risk manager. I was going as. I was going in there as a person who wanted to make sure there was no more broken parts of me. And the only good thing that came out of that was there was eight books that we had to read, and there was like four of them that really held it's like it wasn't layers of the onion that i've been unpeeling it's like there's a whole other there's a whole other fucking onion over here that i need to peel when i'm done with this one and one of the books was called no more mr nice guy about the mr nice guy syndrome oh my god like it, it blew me away like how they asked 20 questions like to see if you've got the syndrome like most people have maybe two or three oh i had 18 of the 20 you know it's like holy shit 
And then my ex-wife, she's listening to it with me. She goes, oh my God, you know, that's crazy. And the power of now, the power of now, freaking amazing book. Okay. And then Jordan Peterson's 12 rules for life. Amazing book. Jocko Wilnick. And I know Jocko, like I've trained with him. You know, Jocko was like in our town here in San Diego. So he trains jujitsu. He has a team over here. I used to see him at tournaments when I was competing. And so like, you know, that his book is amazing. You know, extreme discipline. And then you have, um, what was the other book? It was, um, I can't remember, but I, I posted it the other day. And again, it was one more layer of me, like, going, shit, man, like, is that, is that really, is that really going to be? Oh, it was um, Napoleon Hill's How to Out with the Devil, right? So it's a conversation of him they had with the devil. And so I'm looking at all that. Well, my, all those were very significant books, but the one like the Mr. Nice Guy Syndrome was, man, like I have that. And no, I never would have thought I would have been accused of that because people think I'm, you know, I'm big, I'm scary. Um, but until they get to know me, you know, but then when I become passionate about something, sometimes I had to realize like my delivery can scare people. And so I try and tone it down and, you know, try to listen more, talk less. More on a podcast, so I can't really do that right now. But like, I want to be able to like, listen to what people have to say. You know, see how I can help. And like so you know, you, you've got through a lot of uh, like the personal development. Did that just kick in in your late forties, or was it something that through the years you would always always would have read I'd every always, I would I would I would like watch Tony Robbins. I would um. You know I can't. I mean I always like believe it, but not like now. Like I, the metaphysical the spiritual, like all that coming together happened with um, my wife, Robin, like that, that whole, that whole thing opened up because she had really good, really amazing energy healing in her. She's an empath. She would do energy work on me. Um, she helped me like from taking Ambien. Like she, I had really, really horrible. I, I didn't like to sleep because, you know, when I slept, that's when things happened to me. Um, and then I was always scared of that. I remember like hearing that the Lord, you know, the, the prayer when you're a child, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. It's like, why the fuck does God want to take my soul? What do I do? I'm a kid. Like, what the fuck? What do you mean? If I go to sleep, I'm going to take, no, I don't want to sleep. And I would have insomnia as a kid. And um, it, it, it was, you know, it was bad. And so I would always listen to like the self-help stuff and read it. Like I remember one of the first books I read was how to win friends and influence people. And because of the very young age, I, I opened my own gyms and that was like a great book. You know, the sweetest sound to anybody is their own name, you know, and that premise of like, well, you know, you know, when you're talking to them, Roy, you know, we talk and we use their names, Roy, because people, well, you know how it is, Roy, people want to hear their name. And so when you practice that, it's like, okay you know how do you get in someone's head like from a sales standpoint you know but then i look at it like well i don't really care about the sales now i'm doing it because like that therapist had me realizing that there was so much that was wrong with me and so like i, I would say the first thread was that guy with that book telling me that he's not going to tell me that name of that book and then from there that started me down a road where i started listening to wayne dyer and then I heard that one 
thing that made me go, God, that's what I want. And then about that time is you know, a little over four and a half years ago when I started to see Dr. Moore, you know, the things he told me. And he would just sit back and look at me and just look at me like this. And then I'd get this uncomfortable feeling like I just blah, 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 fucking vomit everything out. And he'd look at me, okay, are you done yet? Then I'd say, hmm, well, no, blah, blah. You sit there, okay. He goes, I can just sit here and keep listening the whole time. He goes, uh, but you're not going to convince me of what you're trying to convince me. I go, no, no, no. I'm just, I'm just giving you the information. I'm giving you all the information. He goes, no, you're doing what you do with everybody. You try and railroad over their feelings with your intellect or whatever it is you think you have. And you, you're, gonna, you're not going to stop. And, you know, people just get tired of hearing it and they just agree with you, but they don't really agree with you. They just wish you'd shut up. And I'd be like, what? He's like, yeah. If people don't ask for your opinion, don't give it. And if they ask for it, they don't have to take it. I was like, what? He goes, yeah, Mike. He goes, why would anybody listen to you? And again, he look at the look at the rearview mirror of life, and that's you back there. So, you know, yeah, it was hard, but I thought like being by myself, but I don't know exactly why, because now I don't have any desire to get into a relationship. Anything it's gonna take away from my personal development and, and then doing this, the book with icon, and you know, so through that. Um, it kind of, you know, Icon kind of, Icon comes in there about that time. About five years ago, five and a half years ago was when I started realizing, you know, when I first had the idea for it and I was trying to get the gentleman on American Idol, he couldn't get on because it was passed. And I thought, well, that's bullshit. And then the whole thing about XCon to Icon came, you know, talking to him and how would we do this thing? And so we put it together and I've been pushing ever since and I've been to Hollywood and I've you know, met multiple producers and the gentleman that's in it with me Rusty Coons that's in the, the in that clip you know that six minute clip right on like he's on Sons of Anarchy and he's a Hells Angels president in Los Angeles or San Fernando Valley I mean he's pretty high up there like he's a he's a real badass biker in the prison he's got a really good metal band Attica 7 and he didn't know me from Adam and um I'm just thinking, like, who's going to be my badass Ryan Seacrest for, you know, my gangster, you know, American Idol? And um, I was looking through, and I, I see this clip with Rusty in it, and I go, that's the guy. So I started Twittering him, texting him, emailing his business office. And the next day, I got a call, and, you know, my ex-wife said, hey, some guy named Rodney's on the phone for you. And I get on the phone, and Rodney, he goes, oh, this is Rusty. What's going on? You want to get a hold of me? And I'm like, oh, shit. So we started talking and he was like, that's the best idea I've ever heard. He goes, it's fucking brilliant. He goes, man, I'll, I'll help you out any way I can. If you can get this to Hollywood, you know, I'll, I'll do whatever. He goes, but Mike, it's gonna be hard. You know, he goes, I, I trust me. He goes, I've been doing this for a while and it's, it's a tough gig, you know? Mm. And, um, but I, I had the nerve to ask him. I said, okay, I'm gonna send you the NDA, you know, the non-disclosure agreement. And he's like, what? He goes, don't take this the wrong way. You're nobody. You know, we don't, in Hollywood, we don't sign NDAs with nobodies. I said, well, I want to protect, you know, protect my product. And um, when I sent him over kind of the take sheet on it and the NDA, he went ahead and signed it. And then we were talking and um, I already, so the part of ICOM when it talks about, you know, the person who was on there, McLean, 
and his mother's talking and he's talking and he's talking about like he went down the road he came back out and that shows a clip of him singing um you know that was all done by a different videographer and i was taking that to hollywood in a couple of days and that's when i asked for rusty's support and he said yes and then my assistant said and this is a real estate so my real estate assistant said hey why don't you ask him if he'll support you in this and let's see if we can get him to go on camera with you i said well can't hurt and i called him and he said yeah he said when can you be up here i said i can be up there today so we went up that day did it in one 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 run and that was it and um and i've been pushing ever since so it's um it's it's been a labor of love it's a little bit of frustrating but um and just for the people I that don't know, because uh, like what, what you were discussing there was that somebody that had an ex-commission, somebody that's been in prison, is not allowed right. to go on to these shows. Right, right. And that's a very good point. That The whole premise of Icon is going from ex-con to Icon, because if you have a prison record, even if you have a lot of misdemeanors, they don't even have to be felonies. They won't let you on any of those shows like American Idol or America's Got Talent or you know, anything like that. Now, I don't know how it is in Europe. I don't know if it's different over there. But in America, like, they don't want anything to do with that. They love the premise, but they didn't want to take the chance and the expense on doing it. And then now in a podcast form, I don't have to narrow it down to just music. I can, I can actually have the people that are about prison reform on there. You know, um, all the people that are in my, I think I sent you the the cut sheet, the take sheet for Icon, and here's, here's all the supporters. You know, um, Scott Budnick, who was a producer for the um, Hangover movies, you know, that was like the biggest comedy grossing movie series of all time. So all three movies were grossed over a billion dollars. And he was so sick of Hollywood that he went and did this thing called Inside Out Writers about children who are prosecuted as adults in America. And they go to these holding prisons as kids until they're old enough. And there's kids in there as young as seven, eight, nine years old. And they're waiting till they turn 18 and they can get pushed into the big machine and they're never getting out. And he went in there and thought, man, these are babies. These are young kids. He goes, how in the fuck can this happen? And he sees two kids that were part of the same crime. One had a public defender, one didn't. One had their own lawyer. The kid who pulled the gun got six months. The other one got 25 to life and he didn't pull the trigger figure that one out mm. and the person didn't die he got shot in the butt and he was out of the hospital the next day and the one kid got 25 to life because he got a public defender is bullshit mm. so scott left that hollywood and started the arc which is the anti-racism coalition and he went full-time into those types of things you know, writing all the wrongs that were done in the prison system AB 136, he helped author that, which allowed nonviolent drug type criminals who had life sentences out early. And those are the kind of people, now I can have those people on the show as well. Plus the people that have the musical talents and let them play their music for people and let them tell their whole story, you know, where they went in life, how they started. Like, like Mike, for example, people, people like me, my therapist and my psychiatrist said, and they both told me this, you've got the worst story we've ever heard. I was like, what? I didn't realize, like, I thought they get, there's tons of, he goes, no, there's a lot of bad stories, but yours is the worst we've ever heard. And people like you become one of four things, right? Homicidal, suicidal, homosexual, or hypersexual. You're hypersexual. 
and you keep going through marriages and looking for validation. And, you know, of the four, yours is probably the best of the four, although they all cause problems in your lives. So look what happened in your life. The married so many times have all these sexual dysfunctions where drugs, pornography, all these things, you know, invaded my life because I was given drugs and alcohol at a long, young age to make me compliant. Mm-hmm. Well, see, later on, you know, uh, sex, drugs, all those things mesh together. All these fucked up things that have happened. And, you know, I don't know how to handle emotionally uncomfortable situations. I flip out, I blow up. I just want to get my point across, you know, why won't you listen to me? Like, why won't, because I didn't realize like, it's, you know, when you put something or somebody in the defense because of your size or you're yelling over them, they're not going to do anything except try to get the fuck away from you. Yeah. You know, and I just want, you know, trying to tell the people that I love, like, fuck man, you don't, you don't understand. I don't want to be this way, but I don't know how to communicate this. And I feel like I, I is there winning? I, if I could just win this, they'll understand. If I can win, they'll understand. And I was like, no, 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 that's, you're not going to, that's not going to happen. And so about two and a half years ago, I'm a year and a half into therapy. And um, they asked me if I would, I was finally at the point where I thought, maybe I didn't need medication. Maybe, you know, because after each marriage, um, there was probably one or two conversations that said, you know, um, you're fucking manic, you're bipolar, you're you know, borderline personality. And every time that it would end like that, and I finally said, man, maybe, maybe, maybe it's true. Maybe I do need medication. But the psychiatrist I had was very caring. And she just said, well, if you are, we're going to find out what you need and, and why. And after a year of, you know, going and listening, she was like, you know, you really can't determine if you do need medication. And if you're willing to take this, if you're willing to take this test, this Minnesota Mental Health Institute test, the MMHI, that test will tell us where to start, like what drugs may help you, what's wrong with you. And so it was like a four hour test and 700 questions. And it asked some like really bizarre questions. And, and those were meant to, to, I guess, to identify, I find out later on that, that maybe you're schizophrenic, you know, or how bipolar, or, or, or you have, propensity to lie. And it came back that I was 99.9% honest and that, um, but that no drugs would help me. Any drug I took would help mask the pain and make me a zombie, but it wouldn't help the underlying condition because it wasn't a chemical imbalance. It's actually amazing that you say that because normally it's normally the opposite. They're trying to pump you with drugs. So the fact that you got that, it's, it's fantastic. They know that you've got the right people that know we're supporting you. I thanks so much for them. Trust me, Dr. Bonnie, Dr. Moore, um, Dr. Hayden, like, yeah. The fact that they were so, uh, yeah, they're very caring. No, it's beautiful. And, um, you know, I, and I, and I do, I feel the same way that they took that time with me and then I was able to take the time it took for me to understand what, you know, a 4.7 on the psychotic deviant scale meant. And it wasn't that I was a deviant. It was anybody who has gone through extreme PTSD, like extreme, like wartime, ambulance drivers, firefighters, police, 
people who see the worst of the worst, those are the people that have this extreme PTSD. And the way to unwind this is um, long term usually. And especially if they've had childhoods like mine, where you never learn those negotiating skills. So I had to learn this. The first premise was my first thoughts are always going to be wrong because I've been conditioned to react, react, react. You know, emotionally, whatever I feel at the time, react on it, amplify it, let everybody know about it, and make sure they agree to it. And that's like how, and I had to realize like that's wrong. My first thoughts gonna be wrong, and to step back from every situation that was emotionally uncomfortable. And now look at it from the standpoint of I'm gonna be up here and looking at it from all angles and what's really being said. And and this isn't personal. And, and I want to make this better and I want to be loving and kind and okay, how do I apply these principles to this situation and practice that every single time and, and, and then go back and say, okay, and then try and apply what I'm, what I, what I want to get across. And then if I feel myself getting out of sorts again, step back, reevaluate it and then go back in. And if I need to apologize, apologize, but, but always letting the people know that, Hey, I'm having a hard time with this and I want to be a better person. And to do that, I have to step back from this. Give me 15 minutes or get, let me call you back tomorrow. Let's talk about this tomorrow. Let me, let me like really learn how to do this. And please let me take this time because, you know, it would usually be somebody that, you know, that I love and cared for. And it, it did. So it didn't happen overnight. And like a year and a half into just learning these processes, like I found myself completely without anybody around. And my therapist said, okay, now get off social media for a while. And just just be by yourself. And I was like, what? And all of a sudden, I'm out here on my ranch, and there's no one here. I don't have any money. I lived off bologna and white bread. You know, that's it, and water. And um, I didn't have any money to like go down. To, I mean, I didn't have money to get. I mean, every coin on this ten acres I found and used because like I I was in no shape to go to work. I was depressed, but I was. And then one day, like everything turned around, like, okay, wait, now I'm enjoying this. Like, look at the stars, man. I can see the Milky Way. I mean, I can step outside right now. I'm at almost 4,000 feet up in the mountains. I see the Milky Way going across the sky. You know, I can sit there and watch shooting stars all night long. I can go out there and have a bonfire. I can just sit there and meditate and write. And, um, and that's where like, that's where the, the magic happens, you know, and this is four years after I'm introduced to the metaphysical world. And, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I started following these different people and, but it's just like everything came together at that point. And that's where the, you know, I, that's where the writing started, you know, and everything I wrote and the perspective in which I try and look at everything. And I'm not perfect, but I know absolutely very quickly when I'm wrong, you know, and to stop and like go back and say, you know, I'm sorry, that's not the way I want to be. Mm. Let me let, let me let me try this again. I will let me start. I, over. I I have read. I read about a hundred books a year, some years, and I know by just like I read your book, and it touched me because I could see straight away that you were awake, but also that the messages that you're given, no matter what level a person is at, you can help them make a shift. There's very few books that can do that. And I think from the experiences that you have done 
you will you will make a change to loads of people. I can't even fathom what you have went through because I I know like I have I know people that have been abused, but like you have gone through like real hard. Like it is it is tough, and you have you have acknowledged it. You have met the right people that have taken you out of this, and now you're making a change. You know because you know where someone else is coming from. You can touch so many people. You can help so many people because you understand where they're coming from. And I think right. that that is beautiful what you can do. And like, I love like your fight now for the, uh, like the, the prisoners, because uh, like I, I have a book and like I put the prison system in it because I realize how corrupt it is. Um, I'm not sure, I even had it here that, uh, yeah, from between 1973 and 95, the prison systems quadrupled four times the amount. Oh, yeah. And like, okay, like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, so this now becomes a ching ching thing. Is it the is it the same way for over there and in Portland? No, you're at? it's actually same? no because uh, like when I was researching, like Holland started closing uh, prisons, Sweden started closing prisons. They Portugal, started, look what Portugal. Exactly, because they started looking at the drug situation totally different, right. and it had a huge impact. Because sometimes people think if you legalize marijuana, <laughs> the next thing is oh they'll get onto higher drugs and everything. Look at Holland; it's legal there. That's not how it works. And, exactly. Yeah. I like I seen one guy. When you, when you said that, yeah. well, when you when you said that, Roy, and um, man, like that, that makes me feel like that. I mean, it's it's a sense of validation, but it's in a healthy way because, and, and I don't even feel like I want to charge for any of it because I don't want money. I don't want to. I don't want anyone to not have access to help because they don't have the money for it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I want to be able to stand in front of children are going through abuse and let them know like it's not okay you have to tell somebody and if i can get that across and then to men who've suffered through these things and have been the abuser you know once they've gotten older and been the ones or or, or they have or, or the role switched where the female is the abuser of the man but in any case it's not right and be able to tell them that and then tell them what works for me to help heal me and then to be able to help with women who've been through it and let them know like you can't keep going back to that type of relationship because this is what's always going to happen. Someone can say, I'll never do this again. I'm sorry, but you have to put all this action behind it. And I know because that's what it took for me to realize how much I had abused those women in my life. Like I would punch the wall. I'd be so angry. I'd break something. And it wasn't to show them that I'm going to do this to you. It was, Fuck, don't you understand what I'm saying? I cannot explain to you enough, and I'm angry that I can't, and I got to like, take that out on something. Like, I got to show, like, I want you to see how upset I am. It doesn't matter. That person's scared of me, and I'm not thinking that way. And then all of a sudden, like, now I see that, like, how that affected them. And I was with um, Robin last, it was last week, and a situation came up, and, um, I look and I notice her body language. I go, oh, wait, I said, you don't want to do that, do you? You don't, you don't like that. And she said, no, no, it's okay. I said, no, no, it's no longer okay. You have the right to tell me anything. And I'm not listening to Robin. And I've, I've been trying to tell her this for like the last couple of years and it's taken her, like, it's taken her a while to really see that 
this is sticking, that this is the new me, that I am not that old person and I will never go back to that. And I said, and I noticed your body language is tensing up. And before, and she goes, wow. She goes, really? I said, yes. I said, because I can tell you, I know how I used to act. And then she looks at me and then I went into how I used to act. And I would be like, what the fuck, Robin? I see you tensing up. Your fucking body language is different. What the fuck, what do you wanna do? You just wanna ruin this time? And like, she started crying. She goes, don't do that. Don't do that. She goes, oh my God. She goes, how can you turn like that so quickly? I said, because I want you to know that I know exactly now I see what I did. And I can tell you, I know. I know now even better now watching this with you, like how much I must have terrorized you. How much like you were living in fear. And I remember like watching the, the soul die from her eyes. I had taken her down a very dark road and it included drugs. And when I got to the end and the party was over and she really didn't want her anymore, I would, I would put drugs in her vitamins. I would put drugs in her coffee because I did not want that party to end. That was horrible. To have to fucking like look back and go, how in the fuck could I have done that to someone I love? But I had to forgive myself and say, look at it. Because I'm making changes now, the only thing I can do to let the people know that I've hurt is to let them know through my actions now, how they see me now, how they see me act now, how they see me respond in those situations with them. Like I didn't, like I didn't before. I, I just didn't see it. I didn't know. I didn't know my delivery was bad. I didn't see myself as being, you know, dominant and overbearing because I'm not a bully. I would always help the ones being bullied, but in my personal relationships, I was fucking being bullying and not knowing it. Like I didn't know that I just fucking thought I was right. And if they would just do it my way and that's ego, that's bad. And just all that shit is who I don't want to be. We have all but our like own belief systems. Yeah. You were programmed. Like we have right. our belief systems from the journey we have taken. And like, you just assume you're correct and they're incorrect, but now because of what's happened, you were able to step back and then go away and take, you know, time out. And it takes a big man. Yeah. And I don't mean your size because, you know, you, you <laughs> I, mean, I mean mentally to actually put up your hand and acknowledge where you actually made a mistake and that how you hurted and to admit it. And even all the different things that you are coming up with, because a lot of the times people, they don't want to say it, they keep quiet. And, and I think it's the best thing you can do because, and you've probably noticed that yourself, when you actually open up, a lot will actually open up as well because a lot of the time people, they close their mouth, they put their head down and they just, but once you just open your heart and you say, look, this is exactly how it is, more will, will do the same. And by doing that, I think you allow them to actually recover by just being so open. Right. Well, I'll tell you, Robin would tell me, this is what she would tell me. And um, I was mad at God for a long time. And now I could say, you know, and now it doesn't matter to me if people say it's God, the universe, you know, Mother Moon, the Mother Earth. It doesn't matter. There's a source energy that we all come from. And if you believe it's Christianity or if you believe in anything else, it doesn't matter to me because we connect. And, and, I, and, I, and I believe everything's okay. As long as whatever I'm doing in my life doesn't 
go over here and prevent you from doing what you want in your life and vice versa. If we're all in this path where we can do what we want and we don't stop or impede anyone else's ability to do that. And if we choose, we can help them if they want it and vice versa. But we have the absolute right to choose what we're going to do in life as long as it does no harm to other people. And she would tell me when I was raging at God going, fuck you, God, you made all this up. You let my childhood be stolen from me. I'm going to fucking do what I want. I'm going to rage and I don't care. I'm going to take every drug I want. I'm going to perform every type of sexual act that I want. I'm going to fucking be this person that's going to be Mr. Extreme in everything I fucking do. And I'm not going to lose. So fuck you. And she would like, she'd say like, Mike, God didn't do this to you, but God made you strong enough so that you could help others who aren't. She would tell me, God made you strong enough so you can help others who aren't. And when that sank in, like, God made me strong enough to help others who aren't. It suddenly, like, that was another shift where, you know, I can use this. I can use this for good. Like, I can, I can take these experiences and I can let other people know that you can recover and you can get help if you want to. And it's, it's not going to be easy, but it's not going to be hard. It's going to be whatever you make it. It can be a joyful experience. It can be this amazing, beautiful experience like I've got to go through. You know, it was all, I mean, when you have to face your destruction of the past, you can look at it two ways. Oh my God, I can't believe I did that. Or, oh my God, I can't believe that I get a chance now to make it right. And I can look at it both either way. Nothing's really good, nothing's really bad. It's what I make out of this, if it's good or bad. You know, and so when that when that when that when that kid died, that's a bad thing. And I'm talking to his mother, and we've been talking. And it's been over a month. Like every day we talk, and we're like, how we're going to do this and what we're doing. We're talking to the detectives. We're talking to the news people. Now it's I put it out on social media, and she says, I just don't know what I'm going to be able to get. How can anything good come of this, Mike? I said, Carol, when you get through the grief. When you get through the sadness, losing your son, and like you said, he was your favorite, and your other kids knew he was your favorite. Ricky was your favorite. When you're done with this, and you truly cry it all out, and you let all your tears go, and you cry as hard as you have to cry, and you cry till there's no more tears, and then you do it again, and you do that, and one day you're gonna wake up, and you're not gonna need to cry anymore. And when you do that, you're gonna be uniquely qualified to do something no one else can do, Carol. She said, what's that? I said, help other parents who've lost their child. Because until you've lost a child, you don't know what it's like. So you'll be able to take this experience. It's horrible now. And it's probably always going to not feel so great. But when you help one, two, five, ten, you help parents the rest of your life the memory of Ricky, so that they can get through it. That's what you're going to be able to do if you choose to. And then she says, and yeah, I can change that stupid fucking law in California where parents don't have any rights. I said, that's right. You should have a right to be able to have part of that suit. And it's not for the money. It's so that you can have your day in court so that you can say how much this man stole your son from you. And their daughter can say how much he stole her brother from you. And all these things that he's done, I feel. Because I was there. I'm being threatened of saying things I don't know, but I feel that way because he was absolutely irresponsible, in my opinion. And as a professional, I can say that because I've gone to school, I've been educated, and I've got a degree in safety and risk management. So I can tell you this what they did was irresponsible.
and threats or no threats by lawyers. I'm going to continue to champion for that lady. But I told her, but now look at, so now you've got two great things you can do. You can help other parents who lost their kids. And now you can try and change legislation in California so that parents' rights are established in some degree, form or fashion. And then now she's got a spark. She's got a spark in her, you know, that she didn't have before. And now I said, you know, there's so many things that need to be done. I can't do them all, but I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to point you in the right direction. I need you to contact this district attorney. I need you to contact this person. I need you to tell them your story and then put them all together, put your timelines together of everything that happened, the things you were told. And so now this lady's got a purpose out of her son passing away. And then my wife, Robin, she gets messages from people. And she was having a strong messages from Ricky to the mom. And so I told her, I said, hey, my ex-wife, Robin, she's very, very, I've watched her when spirits first came through to her, the first time it happened. And we were doing a sound bath over a friend of ours and um, they started coming through. Five came through one session and she was physically at the end. She was just wasted because they were very specific. And I, and I, and I tell anybody this, like she is an amazing person. She'd be an amazing person for you to interview because of her energies. And now she's got her Reiki certifications and, and she had before any of that, like the things that she's done. And so when I told her to talk to Carol, she said some things to Carol and Carol goes, well, yeah, that's okay. But you know, I really didn't understand what she's saying. And other people might believe that. Well, then Carol went to somebody back in New York where she's at. And this person did a reading and it was the same as my wife told her. And she was like, what the, and then she realized her nickname for her son, Ricky was little bird, right? Little bird. My nickname was always Big Bird. And so it was kind of funny when she told me that. I said, oh, my God. And she said, you know, you're Ricky's guardian angel. You know, and then, you know, I hear things in a different way than, than my, my wife sees things come through. But then I hear and get a feeling. And then Ricky's telling me, like, don't let this go. Don't let this go. That's what he's been telling me. And the medium gave her a message. It's, he's, for, he's telling his mom. What they gave me wasn't right at the end. What they gave me was what they, sh they shouldn't have given me that. And she doesn't know what it means. But like, he's telling me not to let this thing go. And he's telling her through the medium, this other message about whatever it was they gave him, it wasn't what they should have given him. Now, when you try and take that to court, it's hard to prove that. Yeah. But from my standpoint, there's a focus now that I'm gonna go down with that metaphysical direction that's going to lead us to that physical proof that needs to be exposed. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's how I feel. And so all these things, you know, you can turn anything around. And the people that I have that have gone to prison out here who've gotten out, so we're lifers and what they've done with their lives now, it's amazing, but they're still told they're less than they still have to walk on eggshells. The system is still set up to trap them again. Cause like you said, if it was a working, it wouldn't be growing. We're the widget in the machine. Why would anybody want to give up the widgets to make the money? But check this out. Let me tell you a couple of things here. Here's some statistics. If it costs $85,000 a year to house a regular inmate in the California prison system, how much do you think it costs to house a child in the California prison system per year? What would you guess? You would assume less. 
half that or something? Uh, no. 225,000 versus 85. 225,000. More than a Ivy League education. More than an Ivy League education. You could have them go to Princeton, Harvard, any of those Ivy League schools would be less than it costs one year of prison. Now get this, and the adult prison system, recidivism is you know in the high 70% over a 10 year period. Mm -hmm. If you take a prisoner and put them in this program where they will get a education at an associate's degree level, it costs 2,500 bucks, that's it. For $2,500 investment, and if they go through the program and come out with the associate's degree, the recidivism rate drops below 1%. Why do you think they don't push that program? They want them for a, because they want the customer for life. That's, that's, and to bring a friend back with you. Go ahead, go back, but we'll see you in a few years and bring a friend or two with you. Have a nice day. And they go to towns where they set up laws that entrap people, and then they build the prisons there to fill them with the people that are now entrapping. And it goes on and on and on. But now, let's say for that $85,000 a year that it takes to house a person in prison, what if we paid the prison system 20,000 a year for every prisoner that doesn't come back? Now, do we care as a society if we're paying them for empty prisons? No. I don't care if it's $1 a year less than we pay, it's less for a taxpayer standpoint. And if the people aren't in prison because they put systems in place that actually work and benefit, then two goals will be, you know, realized. One is people will really rehabilitate. And the people that own the prisons will really still get paid because from a business standpoint and an economic model, if you have a, a prison and it costs you 85,000 for each prisoner, what do you think the profit is out of that? Let's say it's let's say it's ten thousand dollars, but you're risking seventy-five thousand dollars over here. You're putting up in capital. You make this ten thousand over here at the end of the year, right? If you put up zero, and you get twenty thousand, uh, the risk to reward factor is a lot better from an investment standpoint. So the only resistance will be the guards and the guard unions that are the biggest. Okay, they're the biggest ones. They're the ones that have so much power and influence over legislation. So now, if we come up with programs that really work and the prisons get rewarded, the prison owners, the people that own the prisons, will now get paid to not risk any money and to actually put their resources to helping people rehabilitate, educate. Well, that would be a novel idea, wouldn't it? Absolutely. And that's what I want to promote and be able to probe that business model work i've seen another I, I think it was in america as well where they actually allowed uh, from a dog shelter they allowed the inmates to have an animal yeah pitbulls and pitbulls and was it pitbulls and prison right yeah the one of the pitbulls right pitbulls and prisoners i think it's called yeah and it just allowed the you know the, the prisoners the inmates to have compassion and just connect with the dogs and i think it was the same day the, the, the amount of people that were coming back was a lot less due because of that right well then there was one where they also trained the dogs so they would take so let's say someone was a lifer and they really had no chance of getting out but they were 
able to have a better time in prison and become less violent and it caused the violence to go down. And this is amongst people who weren't getting out, but they would take dogs that were rescues and they would train these dogs and love them. And then they would get placed into homes. And so they, these prisoners were training these rescue dogs that had been rescued and, and teaching them they can be loved again. Therefore, now the prisoners are realizing, wow, they take in this dog, it's banged up, it's bruised, it's scabbed up, it's got, you know, there's all these things wrong with it. And now they'd love it back to life. It's teaching those prisoners love, like you said, compassion and all those wonderful things. And so programs like that work, but there's no money benefit attached to the prisons. And, and, and it's diametrically opposed to what they really want, which is more prisoners. It's, it's, it's crazy, but that's what they want because they're a business. There's no business that, no business is in the business of going out of business. No, exactly. Yeah. I'm not sure no of the business. current amount of, because I, th I thought America was number one, but I think it's number two. But does, mm -hmm. is it two, more than two million people that are actually in prison in the States at the moment? Yes. It is. Of the whole world, we're 20, almost 25% of the prison population is in America. But yet we're what percentage of the population of the world? It's, it's ridiculous. And, I, and I, don't, I don't have the right statistic in front of me, so I'm not going to quote it, but it's like we're, we should be like down like around 2% of the total prison population. But we've got 25% of it in America. And it's crazy. So it's like we're, we're, we made a business. And it's the same way with drug rehabilitation. You know, AA and NA don't work. They work for short periods of time. But over a 20-year period, AA is less than 5% people will stay sober over a 20-year period. Because if all you do is go to meetings and think about all day long, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to drink. All day long, you're thinking about, you know, like Abraham Hicks where, and, and, and Tony Robbins, where your thoughts go, your energy flows. And if you're thinking about not doing something all day long and you're white-knuckling it, instead of going, well, you know what? If I want to have a drink, I'll have a drink. and I'm not even going to think about it anymore. It's not really an issue with me. You know, um, you know what, if I'm going to smoke some pot, I am. Okay, great. I know not to be doing crystal meth or shooting heroin or all these other things, but you know, I, it doesn't have to be 100% all in or all out because I'm finding there are some gray areas in life, you know, and I've always been black or white and um, I'm trying to live more in the gray, I think, you know, and just sit back and go, wow, you know, let me take it all in and what feels, what feels best. Oh, well, that didn't feel good, you know. Okay, don't do that again. Oh, that felt good. Okay, maybe that I'll keep doing. And just, you know, run my life like that. I'm sure if people actually realize it as well, because of the, you know, two million plus that's in America, I think there's at least 10 people that are affected, probably more, between family, children, friends. So there, there is over 10%, possibly 20% of the American population that's affected by this broken system that needs to be. Almost, almost everybody, almost yeah. everybody has had someone they know in the system and heard the stories. Like, I mean, everybody now, again, like how much it affects them is probably different levels, but it's going to be higher than the 10% because, you know, they've had personal intimate relationships with like friends or whatever that went to prison and, things that happened like it's crazy Roy like it's almost 100% of people in America have some type of interaction with someone who's not in prison 
I know it's crazy how much. And then, then you have the people, like you said, who are deeply affected by it, like the, the family members themselves, you know, or the good friends or the wives or the husbands. And those people, I mean, and the kids, like you said, those are the people that are that 10%, but man, it's the other 90% have some sort of interaction. And that's why I think like with Icon, it'll really be good because people want to see people succeed. They want to see it. They see, they want to see a, a comeback story. You know, mm. they want to see somebody rebuild and succeed. And that always feels good, you know, Definitely. and that's what we want to be able to show that those people, those people exist and tell those stories and let them see that picture that they want to paint and what they want to tell in their own way and, and having a free form to do it, you know, and then to hear their story, like, you know, what caused them to go down this road? How did they get there? Like my story, I mean, I, I did one year at George Bailey and George Bailey was where like you have jail and then you have prison and then you have the, like, this holding cell, a place for the people who are going back to prison who their, their show is over, they got busted again and now they're pissed and they're in the prison that's sending them back to the other prison where they're gonna go. So once you're in jail and they're waiting trial, right? Then once they decide, okay, you're either innocent or guilty. And if you're guilty, now you move out of the jail system and you go to the prison system, but there's a lag time to where they're gonna, which prison are you gonna go to? Where do they have an opening? And so at George Bailey, that's where everybody is, is they're getting distributed out and nobody's happy about it because they've had a long stretch ahead of them. And I was there, the judge wanted to make an example of me and I didn't listen to him. And he made an example of me and I was there for almost a year. And like, that's kind of unheard of. And I didn't get any good time. And I watched people there just don't give a fuck about life. And I realized I'm not a badass. Like these, when there's, just, when there's somebody in there that doesn't care whether they live or die, they surely don't give a fuck if you do. But yet the prison system is set up so that, hey, you're white, you better get with the whites. You know, get in this car over here, you're down with the woods, get in this car. And it's not a matter of like, I don't like blacks, I don't like Mexicans, it's like this. Each race has to patrol their own. So if I'm a white guy and I'm higher up, I'm in the Aryan Brotherhood, Nazi lowriders, whichever it is, and you got someone who's disrespecting like one of the blacks, um, it's your job to put that guy in line. You don't go over there and start a fight with the blacks. You get your guy in line and you beat his ass down. And if you're the new one in the car, then your job is you're gonna go over there and beat that guy's ass. And if it and if it if it's if it rises to a high enough level, and you're gonna go fucking stab his ass. And if not, we're gonna stab you. So get going. And that's what you gotta do to survive. I'm like, fuck man, that is not me. I do not want that life. But that's the so whole system broken. Like that's they orchestrate yeah. that. They intentionally do that yeah. to make the aggression there, to keep the system rolling. They want the hatred. Right. They want the hatred then when they come out, so they're still at it. Get them back in. You know, it's there's right. no need for that. And like one situation that I came across was there was um, a, a video, a guy, a homeless guy, and he was smoking. Uh, he was brought uh, arrested for uh, marijuana. He said it was just for himself. So and which I know, you know, uh, that you, you don't have to be dealing. You can if you were caught at some stages, you were arrested. He said he couldn't get a rental contract. So he's out homeless. He can't actually get a job because of his record. So if you look at the, yeah. you, I mean, you mentioned 85 grand. I know it's a lot higher some places. Even in Ireland, it was over 100 grand per inmate. 
If you look at the, because um, he, wow. he, his way of surviving is robbing, is fighting. So then it's leading to court cases. It's dealing, the police have to deal with it, goes through the whole system again. It costs the taxpayer 10 times more right. than having respect, give them dignity, help them get on the ladder, help them get a job, give them, I'm not saying give them a mansion, give them a small 30 meters squared, give them something to help them to get back into society and don't be tarring them with the same brush. Don't stamp prisoner on their head. Let them blend in. They've served their time. Right. Like, like Portugal, when they decriminalized all drugs, right? And have you seen that TED Talks? I forget the guy's name. He does the one TED Talk and he says, if you want a model of exactly how to do it wrong, look at America. He goes, ostracizing people from their family, ripping the love away from them if you don't do this when you have an intervention, um, it's not working because the rehabs are growing just like the prisons. You know, the sober living homes are growing just like the prisons. Because again, if it was working, there wouldn't be a drug problem. Portugal did the opposite. They decriminalized all drugs. You can't go to prison for drugs over there. When you need help and you decide, I want help, and you go to the government and say, I need help, they're gonna pair you with somebody who has helped gone before you and the government's helped and now they've built a business and now you go and they're gonna match you with someone so like your trade or whatever propensity you have to like maybe work in a field, they will pay half your wages or a portion of them for a period of time. And then that takes the burden off of the person who's who's got the business now, who's thriving. Now he gets people coming in, he teaches them what he's learned. And now this person kind of gets to go over here now and they get a loan, the government gives it to them to start their own business. And that's how it's worked over there. So I think it was heroin of itself use was down over 50%. And then all intravenous drugs for like 55, it was one or the other. So it was more than half on both accounts, heroin and intravenous drugs. And then all drug use across the board was like 60% less use. Because when people wanted help is when they went to get help. If you're being forced to go get help, it's rarely going to work. Yeah, no, no. You have you to, know, inside it's just, it's you just, need it's to. It doesn't work, yeah, right? Yeah, you need yeah. to say, I want change. Yeah, no, definitely. Yep, that's it. And in the prisons, so the do one. they have, like, um, are they watching the television? Are, do, do they have televisions on with news and stuff like it, that? It, de it depends, like, if they've lost their privilege or not. So there's television. There's a thing called the um, um, American Prison Network. And my friend Dennis, um, he has some influence on that. And you know, hopefully I'll be able to get this into that, you know, the prison network. Um, but again, it's like everything else. It's anything you have when you're there is, can be taken from you to discipline you. So, you know, it can be, I mean, there's extreme examples of all that. So yeah, you, you can watch, you can have your own TV or you can see TV in the day room, but like it may be today's, you know, the blacks get to control the TV room. And they're going to watch what they want to watch. And then, you know, the next day, it's going to be the whites. And so you're still only watching what the group consensus watch, what they want to watch for that day in the day room. If they even have TVs in that day room at that prison, depending on, you know, what the prison's like that they're at. And, you know, thank God, like, I went to one at George Bailey, and they called that Thunderdome because, like, everybody had to fight. Like, that was a place where you had to learn, like, whether you're a tough guy or not. And not a, not a tough guy, not a, I, I, I care about myself enough. You know, I care about people and, um, 
and that but that still that was 25 years ago that wasn't enough to change me either i just i didn't know until i knew you know mm -hmm. i didn't know until i knew and i had experience with robin that was you know a metaphysical out-of-body type shit but like you know you just go whoa like you can't deny it and like you know my life's been saved multiple times and um wife number five predicted my death and she, and i was you know i'll give you a real quick story how like i know there's another forces god's god's been looking out for me i'll say this i believe it's called god i believe it's god god was looking out for me and you know my wife number five and i split up we weren't together that long we were married for nine months i married her out of revenge to piss off wife number four like that's the kind of stupid shit that i did and so it didn't work out and i hadn't heard from her for months and we we're going through the divorce and it was probably nine months since the last time i talked to adrian and i get these frantic messages and email or text messages and phone calls in the middle of the night but i don't see him because i have my phone the ringer off and i wake up and i see them all and i'm like what the hell and i call her because it says please call me call me so i said what's going on she said mike i had a dream and um I, I, every time I go to sleep, I have the same dream, and it's really sad. And I said, well, what is it? She goes, I see you going on this motorcycle ride this weekend, and if you go, you're going to die. Six people are going to die, and if you go, you're going to be the sixth one. And I, I, I think, I go, oh, fuck. She, she found out from somebody that I'm going there with this girl, Kelly, because she says, she goes, I see the color blue. I see a blonde girl there, and, and um, I know you're going to be riding with her. And so my whole mind, I'm thinking, like, she just doesn't want me to go with this girl and she found out about it. And she says, in this dream, it's sad because when you die, we're still married and I have to go get all your belongings together. And in the nightstand next to your bed, there's a card that you got for me and you never signed it. Well, the day before, I got a card for her and I never signed it. And this was on Friday, she's telling me this. On Saturday, I'm leaving for Arizona with this girl named Kelly, who's a blonde with a motorcycle club whose colors are blue, okay? And uh, and there's no way she could have known that card was in my thing, but it was my son's birthday, so I bought my son a birthday card and I bought a card for her that said basically, you know, I'm sorry things didn't work out, but hopefully we can always be friends. And I never signed it. And when she said that, like right now, I fucking get chills again. I was like, fuck, I told my roommate, he goes, no, you're, we're not going, you're, not, you're not going on that ride. So him and I went riding up to Palomar Mountain on Saturday, about three o'clock in the afternoon. My phone starts ringing on my cell phone. I feel my pocket, we pull over, and my phone's jammed up with messages because people thought I was going on that ride. Are you okay, are you okay? I'm like, what? Five people died. Four died that day, one more died later. And, um, and it was the biggest motorcycle crash in, in United States history. And a car was going the opposite way, and the club was going to Arizona. And he lost control and then just like bowling pins wiped him out. And if I'd been riding, I would have been riding next to her and I'd be dead. Wow. And that's like one of the one of the many times like that's happened in my life. Mm -hmm. To that degree of like there's no denying like I've got you here for a mission. I got you here for a reason. Um, and I can give you more and more like where there were icon specific where three different people in three different venues called me a shifter. They said, you're going to shift the way people look at a certain class of people. 
One was in a, prof a prophecy class through the church. It was realizing your prophetic gifts, how to have, how to exercise prophecy. Like when you see somebody and you, you want to feel like, and you can call it like, you know, doing a reading on somebody, but you know, in the church, they call it this. And there was some, there was some talk in the church that I was going to because they said, Oh, you're, you know, that's, that's new age. That's this, that's that. But it's not, it says it in the Bible, you know, if you believe the Bible and you're going to use that as the rule of law, then it says, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can say, move mountain, move, and you'll be able to move that mountain. And, and Jesus says, you know, you can do these things and greater can you do in my name if you only believe. He walked on water, he raised the dead, he did all these things. So it's telling you right there, like, you can do all these things, which, you know, the secret and other, other things say that you can do. It's all the power of your words. Like, you're co-creating all the time. And so, you know, I believe the Bible has a different message, I believe, than what a lot of people do. But I just keep it to myself, you know. But I'm going to tell you, like, it when you're speaking those words into things or letting words speak through you like i watched it happen with my wives you know to have that um clear conscious contact with source energy you know whatever you want to call it and like i've experienced stuff like that all my life and I remember, like I used to be, when I was uh, in my 20s, I used to love motorbikes and I had a CBR 250 and, you know, like there was times I would okay. be doing 180 in a 50, you know, it was, and I never yeah. had an, never had an accident, but then I got um, um, a Virago 700. It was an actual American import and I'd done it up. I had all the yeah, Yamaha, Yamaha, right? Yeah. And Yamaha, Virago. it just didn't yeah. feel, I, I was getting a bad vibe on it the whole time. It was just, I, I just didn't. I didn't know what it was. And my daughter, I don't know what age she was at the time. She three or four. She just started, like she was hysteric for a couple of days and nobody knew what was wrong. And I was, I just sat down and I said, look, what's wrong? And she said, daddy, I don't want you to die on the motorbike. And I rang my friend. I said, take, I didn't drive the bike once more. I said, take the bike. Cause I was even feeling a bad vibe from it. And like, she never reacted That's like it. that. You know, I, was, I just said, yeah, I'm listening to this. I can, that's it, your gut feeling, your gut, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's that thing inside of you that tells us that we all, we all have that. And the more we listen to that, instead of listening to this. Exactly, get, get that know, out of the way. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and listen to the heart, listen to the gut, like, you know, and, and take the ego out of it and go, wow, okay, man, I'm gonna, I want to I wanna listen. And um, I learned a lot in those prophecy classes, you know, how to be your prophetic gift, how to, like, clear your mind and just feel into what's, you know, what the other person's, what, what do you have? What, what message do you have for this person? You know, and being able to, to trust yourself, it's a very, because you're burying yourself, like you're taking a chance of, okay, I mean, I'm going to say what I'm feeling and this may be nothing close to what it is. And I'm going to look like an idiot. Well, you can't look at it that way. Yeah. You have to say, man, okay, I'm going to feel into this energy and what is it telling me? And normally and when you do that, normally when you throw it out there, because there's times you're questioning yourself, but you say, no, I just know this is right. And you're so right. happy you do that because the amount of people right. that come into your life because of what you have done, you never regret it. Yeah. You know, because like we, right. we're, we're worried about the head starts getting in the way, thinking about, okay, what will parents think? What will, you know, your spouse think? What will friends think? And you just, if you know right. it's right, just, just drive on with it and you, you won't That's regret it. it. That's it. That's right. And so when I can pass that on to other people and when I can just affect other people's lives, you know, you know, 
I want to do it and I feel that's the right thing to do, you know, for me. And I think other people who've suffered through what I went through, I believe it'll help them. You know, when you learn to serve others and you get out of yourself and, you know, and when you can do things for others and do it anonymously, like all those things in the book, like it's not that I thought of all of them, but it was like all the different people, you know, like Abraham Hicks and Wayne Dyer and, you know, all the other people that I put back in those credits, you know, I listened to all that and it is, it is the same thing they've done. They've listened to mentors and people and they've come up as works for them, what they feel works for them. And, you know, I just think like from my belief is like, I don't really care about the money part of it. I don't care if I ever make any money out of it. You know, that's not the point. I, you know, if I sell some books, I get great. I can sell books, but if someone needs a book, you know, I want them to get that book or at least get an ebook version of it or a PDF file. I mean, it's something because leave it up to the people who, who have the abundance to donate what they want for whatever so that other people can go, they can't, you know what I mean? That's, that's the only way, like, I don't, I don't need a lot to live. You know, I rent out my main house next door, a three bedroom, two bath house to two families. And they're so they're, they're from Alabama and they're like, man, they're Mr. Mike and they're super nice and their kids are respectful. And like every night they got a plate of food for me. Like, Hey, you want some dinner, Mr. Mike? And I'm like, yeah. And then they, they'll do my laundry. And so I live in the studio here because that's all I need. You know, I don't, I don't have a lot. I don't need a lot. I got my gym at the top of the property. I got my meditation garden up there. And that's where I can just like, that's my Zen. Like that's my Zen, mm. you know? And that's where I can go and get centered. And um, so I don't need a lot of money to live. I think I going on a, a base yeah. on a, a model of soundness, yeah. like the donations, because there will be others that they can give a lot because of they love what you're doing. And some people won't be able to afford it and just your main focus is getting the message out and by actually getting right. decent donations it will allow, allow you to get more messages out to do to, to reach more people that's exactly exactly sure listen michael it's been wonderful like you're you're st- I, I know we can talk more on the, the 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 prison systems as well we can definitely you know uh, get back <laughs> yes. and see because i yeah. i know that you're going to be interviewing different people over the coming months as well and it's all about to me it's about solutions one thing that i've seen is it's all down right. to the food because if you give people the right food get sugar out of their system they're not aggressive you know, that has been proven. Yeah. That was like, like from one of the books I read, it was like 80 years ago. And by giving the right food, you get rid of aggression. So even to just give the inmates oh, yeah. the food that's not GMO, that's not sugared, that's yeah. really good food, you will make such a shift. And then you reduce the amount of people that are going back in because people don't want to be there. Like, why does somebody rob? They, they don't have the money. They don't have the opportunities. You know, right. it's, it's a vicious circle. So you just go back and you just... You find out, okay, where is the majority of people coming from? Let's 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 stop this 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 road into the prison system. They're coming out and going back in. Why? Let's fix this. Everything. There's a solution for everything. We can't expect the government to do it, but people and even the inmates themselves, because they all have a conscious decision. You have made a huge shift, and you have had a very difficult journey. And you know, I admire how you've actually come out of that and what you've developed. And I encourage people to read what you've got because it is beautiful. And once you're like, what, where it gives me confidence in humanity is 
I have never seen a person who has become awake go back to sleep. And there is more people awaking up. That's right. And now you are pressing a button. You, yeah. you are touched. And you, to me, you're touching one that needs it more than any. You're, you're reaching a system that is there. And you can make such a shift to humanity with what you're doing. And it's beautiful. You've reached out to people and they're on board. And I think we need more people like you. And like I love what you're doing. I love the strength that you've got. The passion, it's not about the money. And to me, that's what I love as well. Because I can I can see that even what you said. I know that. It's it's not about the it's about right. the mission. And I believe that's we right. can do it together. Where like there's a there's enough people that's out right. there that want the change and I believe we can do it. That's right. That's right. No, I I appreciate that. Like you're you know, it feels really good to have that reinforced by someone who um who's also woke, you know, that you that you understand, like you get that. And, you know, this is, this is good validation for me versus, you know, the old way I try to get validation. This just means that like everything is, I'm going down the right road, you know, and then being able to broadcast it out there and how to, you know, get it to kids and and be able to go speak, you know, in front of people and, and give them, you know, inspiration. And now with the podcasting, because of all the social restrictions, which, that's a whole other podcast of things to talk about, but like, at least this can, I can, how I can get this broadcast out and find the ways to get this into the people who need to hear it and see it. Like that's going to be my biggest challenge, but I know that that'll come. You know, I know that'll come. It'll find, it'll seek its level, right? It'll seek its level to where it will get to the people who it needs to get to and the medium that it needs to get there. And that's all that really matters to me. Well, my, my plan is actually what I'm going to do with, uh, I want to set up a charity with the, the funds that I make from the book. And I have a few books in the pipeline, but the main one is the Awakening book. It's called New World Revolution, The Awakening. And my purpose is to create all these systems and you have full transparency because charities are very corrupt as well. And if we can have something where we have the right people on board, that Roy isn't taking out a million salary. Roy doesn't take any salary from this. We even set up different social media systems that aren't, you know, that aren't controlled, that aren't telling you what to do. And people will make the shift from one to the other. And that's what it's about. You can't attack these. You can't attack the system. Attacking the system, it just zaps your energy. You create something beautiful and the people will get on board and you just get your message out. And once you touch someone, they'll make sure that the next person gets touched as well. And the ripple effect will actually spread that, you know, we make change in the world. I'd like to get a copy of your book. I'd like to get a copy, even if you have part of it, just to look. And then I, and that's one of the things, you know, that you can help me with is, you know, the website for the book and, and, and then for Icon and, and how to work because that's where I'm in uncharted waters and I just want to do it the right way. So, and I appreciate you reaching out to me on some of these things. And so, and I know um, Kaylin, um, you know, I'm supposed to talk to him and, and Joel after tonight or, or after this, because like that guy, like, I don't know about you, but when I see him, like, like you, I think were you the one that said you must be cloned? Someone said the other day, like you must have cloned yourself because of how much he does, and he's all in. Like, and I think to myself, man, like if I'm not doing what he's doing to that degree, I'm really slack. I'm like, it kind of like made me go, wait, I'm, I'm lying to myself. I'm not doing everything I can do. How much do I really believe in this? Like, I've really got to like kick it up a notch. So that was really good, you know, to see that that he's really open and transparent, like yourself. And then I've had these last two days of like, 
a person who wrote that story about her brother getting murdered and and how she saw that you know, the promo reel how it affected her and then basically then she said no because her business manager said no and i make a business manager and she wanted a contract and she wanted to have full editing control of our conversation and i was like what are you talking about and then i even agreed to that and that's how i know there's an outside influence and i talked about it with one of our, my pastors and he said like there's an outside influence it's going to be always there's somebody going against you okay and that because you know that what do you believe in good and evil dark light whatever there's going to be this anti-force that's going to throw these roadblocks up so a person who was like so on board that it made her pause and think and then she wrote this big long letter and i have murder and forgiveness and about how she had to forgive that person in jail after seeing that video because she thought maybe no one ever loved the guy who killed her brother you know and so you could see the shift in her in this letter and now she basically said i don't want anything to do with this but you'll find someone else don't worry and i said no god's talking to you so whether you want to tell the story or you want me to tell it for you that's gonna be your choice because i'm absolutely going to tell like i said but out of respect i'm going to take the story down off the board so you don't have to worry about it but i'm gonna let people know just in generality how someone who has so much passion for this is still worried about how they're going to look not about the prisoner and the people we're talking about and that's where ego gets involved or like people who've gone to prison and they don't feel they have that self-worth that's still ego but it's it's in the opposite way but that's still their ego telling them that they're not they don't they're not worthy they don't have a story well yeah you've been out of prison 10 years and you have a family and you have kids and you just bought two of my dogs and like everyone i recommended you to you do a great job and they tell me how great you've done like i want to interview you i want to, i want to, i want you to tell i want you to be able to show people that how when you were in prison you were on the fire team and so you would go out and instead of just sitting in prison and rotting you were out there cutting line and fighting fires the whole time you're in prison and then you come out and you use that skill and ability to start your own brush clearing service for people in like out in this rural area where I'm at that have to have that done. And you know, he'll make three or $4,000 in two days clearing brush and doing it the right way. And he does a fantastic job and he's booked up solid, you know? And I think, man, that's a great story. And so, but he thinks he'll have anxiety and he doesn't. So like try to get someone like him or the other girl, Veronica, where they're like, Hey, you told me this, you were going to do this. Why are you having resistance now? And then I get served with papers today, you know, that, that this guy wants to sue me for telling a story that's true. Um, but it's okay. Like, I'll, I'll get through all those things, you know. But like, today you was a very heavy stay. day. Yeah. No, like, yeah. you just have to stay strong. I mean, we get knocked curveballs and just think you're on your bike and you just do a swerve. And just yeah. like the people that you want on, maybe they're not ready now, but you can be sure that they're going to follow you. They'll hear other stories and eventually they'll come back in. You know, that, 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 that's all you can do. And I got a listing today. So I got a listing and a purchase for a friend. So they signed the agreement. So, you know, that's going to be a good twenty thirty thousand dollars $30,000 day. And they're motivated and I've been working with them a while. So, hey, it was still a good day. So I got to make some money. That's the way to but look. Look at the, always they, look at the positive side positive. of life. But they didn't want a DocuSign. They, I had to go do it old school. Sit down with them one-on-one, -on -one, read the paperwork over, and sign wet signatures. I haven't done that in a while. It was, you know, but it was good to sit down and speak with somebody and, and have that one-on-one -on -one connection. You know? yeah. And this is someone who's, 
been in and out of prison and he's 66 years old and he, he's been doing really well for himself and he's moving on in life and he's leaving San Diego and selling the family home. And he told me, he goes, I'm, I'm proud to have you selling my home. Beautiful. That made me feel good. Yeah. You know, that made me feel good. So Michael, how can uh, people get in contact with you? Well, if you go on and look up Icon on Facebook, or if they go to yours, there'll be a link on yours too. Because no, you, I put it. I will. Are, yeah, exactly. I'll put all yeah. your links on the podcast. So they can go there. I also have a, some other pages, like the writing page, where I encourage people to write. And I, I like writing poetry. I mean, it sounds kind of crazy, but spoken word poetry, poems, screenwriting. Like, I have all these other things that that's where my life. I wanted to go to now, and that creative side of me. And so the writing page and Icon are the two pages to get a hold of me. And, um, and you know, if you want to inbox me there, message me, I'll be happy to talk to anybody who wants to talk or anybody who wants to get on the show that can, that knows, you know, what we're talking about and understands what we're talking about. I'd love to hear anyone's perspective on it and, and hopefully put them on the show too. Okay, beautiful. Listen, Michael, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, Roy, I can't believe almost two hours went past. That was great. Um, I really appreciate you. I appreciate um, you being on this with me and me being on with you and doing this together. That means a lot to me. So I just want to thank you and um, let everybody know that they deserve a second chance in life. And I think my mission will be complete and anything I can do to help you, I'll be there for you. Thank you for having me on. It was wonderful. Really enjoyed it. All right. Thank you, Roy.